Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. It's another exciting, it's personally, it's a very exciting episode for me because I finally have one of my favorite people in the world on here. And also I should say thank you to, to Audrey, our intern, who is, pronounce your last name again for me. Falberg. Falberg with an F. No. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I apologize. It's just like I've known Audrey's and Adrian's with Thalberg and Thurnberg and it's all getting confused and I'm on my third day without much sleep and so it's kind of a vision quest and I see these half-naked Indians running around and it's all very strange <laughs> and um, you know and Jack Butler can't be here because he's got to go do some weird thing with blood magic and so it's all it's all very weird and um, Steve Hayes just insists on staying in, in Spain for a while longer while they're trying to launch this company and something's got to give and I got to make the tomato sauce. So anyway, uh, but I have one of my absolute favorite people. We've tried to get this done for a while now. It just happened to coincide with what has turned into Ladies Week because we had uh, Megan McArdle on here earlier this week. And now we have the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard. Welcome aboard, A.B. Jonah, it's great to be with you. Um, I am a longtime listener of the Remnant podcast, and before I let anything seep from the bottomless wells of my worship for you, I'm going to just open by saying it's very humid today in Washington, and I have finally found something that I don't like about you, Uh-oh. which is that you ruined June for me. So I tend to savor June uh-huh. and be in denial about the fact that the the weather is going to get just horrifying. Uh And I try to savor every not really humid day in June. And then I read Jonah's tweets. (laughs) I I hang on to your Twitter feed for my sanity. You mean like my weather forecast? And throughout June, um, the lament repeated itself about how this could be the last nice day we have (laughs) until October. And so so I I usually am really good until July 4th, and then I get really angry about the permanent humidity. Yeah. And so this morning I walked out, and I was reminded again that you kind of ruined June because I, I tend to really – I'm very able uh, um, to stay in the state of denial in June, and now I don't know. I, I apologize for that. I mean, we both are have made the grave, grave mistake of living in a city that for about four months out of the year – has the same climate as like Michael Moore's sweatpant fog, and um, <laughs> oh, uh, wow. and I, 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 I'm a Goldberg, as you know. I'm descended from a desert people, but we like a dry heat, and I just don't function really well in all of this. And um, but you've been here longer than I have. Yes, I think so. Well, I came in 1990. Okay, it's just slightly longer, but like you were part of the actual swampiness of reporting and being a political reporter for a very long time, right? What was your first job? 
So I came down here with the intent that I was going to get a job in newspapers because like Jonah Goldberg, I grew up in New York City Mm -hmm. and there were no newspapers to work at because we were not going to be welcomed at the doorstep of the New York Times. So you had to get up and get out. And I thought that there would be and I was correct that there would be more opportunities here because back then we had small newspapers. Right. And with the death of local journalism, we no longer do. But I was able to get a job. I knew that there was going to be uh, uh, you know, plenty of, of openings at small papers in Maryland or Virginia. And I could live in D.C. maybe and commute or at least be close to D.C. And I actually found one in Woodbridge, Virginia. And I started as a feature writer. Out by the and, mall. Uh, yes, the mall by the Potomac the Mills Mall. Okay. It, the mall was there, but there was a lot of farmland. And I actually really watched it change. It was incredible to see how rapid the development was. And I would commute home and watch the parking lot of people commuting home because I was doing a reverse right, commute in right. 32 minutes. Which doesn't exist really anymore. It's right. It's incredible. But I, but I saw firsthand and I would do it in the morning. I would zip down and they were, you know, in a parking lot and I would think this is why people drink too much and beat their wives. So anyway, it was a great opportunity. And then I got a job at, um, well, no, actually first I got a job, boy, I'm old at the Washington Post sorting mail where I got enough clips to get this other newspaper job. Uh And then after that newspaper job, I went to work. That was my first job covering Congress was after my Woodbridge, Virginia stint at State's News Service, which you might have heard of. The late lamented State's News Service. The legendary. They did stuff. I read a profile that Howie Kurtz wrote about State's News Service and the illustrious Leland Schwartz, who did end up going to jail for tax evasion after I worked for him, in the Washington Post magazine. Was there any correlation between after you left for him and, and tax evasion? <laughs> These independent I'm variables. not complicit. Okay. Um, but, uh, we, but I really was enamored of this profile of how everyone was pulling their hair out and they work for nothing and the whole newsroom was like, one big OSHA violation, and it was insane, and he would get mad and throw his phone at you or whatever, and I thought, I want to work there. So, By the way, listeners, that's the kind of place you want to work for very little money. <laughs> Send me an email. I might have a job for you. At Reagan35x.com. <laughs> that's right. Okay. And, so, um, and so that was my first opportunity to go to markups, which is what you – basically, that's how a bill is written, is in the markup. First, there's a hearing, and then there's a markup, and then you – Amend it, and then the bill goes from committee to the floor. That's back in the old days where the committees actually were allowed to do the the work, and Congress actually passed bills. Um, And so I really cut my teeth learning all about how the Congress worked there. I wrote for papers in Alaska and Louisiana, two states I had never been to. Uh During my time there, I went to Louisiana, but I was uh, no one could send me to Alaska. But I learned, you know, they overlapped um, in issues, and uh, the girl from New York City got to learn. A lot about wetlands Uh and oil and gas Uh and all sorts of things that I knew nothing about. And then I went to the Hill newspaper in – so it was really fortuitous timing because it in the November tsunami of 1994, overnight, my my delegations were important. So my my Alaska delegation that – you know, you you know a lot about because you spent a lot of time with family in Alaska. Like Don Young, who's still, I mean, was there then. And it's still there just now, right? incredible that everyone teased me that nobody knew who my members were. And overnight, Ted Stevens was appropriations chair on yeah. the Senate. Overnight, Frank Murkowski was energy um, chair in the Senate, and Don Young was energy yeah. and natural resources or marine and fisheries. It was before, and, and so they were really powerful overnight because of their seniority, and and that was just a great 
great fortuitous timing for me. And then I went about six months later to the Hill newspaper that started to sort of compete with Roll Call, which had been to that date, to that point for decades, the only kind of campus newspaper that only served a niche audience of the Congress and those around the Congress lobbying community, et cetera. And then the Hill formed to sort of take it on and and gave them a run for their money, kind yeah. of put them on the side of the road, actually. The Hill's a little different now. Yeah. Um, so so I was there for a couple of years and then I went to ABC News and uh-huh. that was my first um, – I went to be the Senate reporter, the Senate producer they call it, but you're basically the off-air reporter. Uh, and I did that. I was sort of done with the campus newspaper thing. And so I went to learn about TV and I learned enough to know that I never wanted to be a TV correspondent. They they were interested in me trying that on. But I learned that, you know, you you have to really want that. And I just didn't – there was not a part of me that wanted it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a – there's an earthquake or there's a trial and you get to go there and keep buying clothes and we'll just keep you there for six weeks and you'll hope to get on air, whatever. You have yeah. to love the camera. So I learned a lot and I really loved – I loved ABC and I loved Robin Sproul, the bureau chief at ABC. He's one of the best bosses, if not the best I've ever had. And I, I really – I just had a great experience there and then realized that I wanted to get back into print. So I sort of crawled my way back into print and ended up with this going back to the hill but as a columnist and and um they wanted someone to go on TV and be um on the political chat shows right so so and that's that um and for people who want the more granular AB Stoddard origin story uh the John, John Ward's podcast The Long Game you did a very long thing we talked about your dad yep who was a big TV executive, created Roots, or was part of that whole thing that created Roots. And no, your dad's not Alex Haley. It's a different thing. But uh, <laughs> but um, in his New York Times obituary, um, which ran, I think, on Christmas Eve of 2014, it is he's pictured. He the picture of him is with Alex Haley. Is that right? And he's in his. He, my dad was only five foot five, and uh, it was. It was a flashback from childhood, from early childhood, because he gave them up later. But he's wearing lifts. He's actually wearing a slight heel on his shoe. But Alex Haley, he, he Alex Haley gave us roots, but my dad Got it. gave yeah. Alex Haley uh, the opportunity. Yeah, it made the, the production. So, um, and, and Bill Walper. So it was a really, it was an incredible experience as a kid when it was happening. I was old enough to, not old enough i mean I've, i it would have been better maybe if i had been 15 but still yeah. old enough to to um go on the journey with him and he talked obviously a lot about it and uh it was a really an incredible time in television yeah it's hard to explain terms... to people young younger people today what a big deal roots was when right was and just that kind of that my father was the he sort of pioneered the miniseries on television. So he did Rich Man, Poor Man and Thornbirds and The Day After and all of these, uh, some risky, some not, big, long stories that would go on for five nights or three nights. And that was a new thing back then. Right. Uh, and everyone the next day was talking about it at the water cooler. And it was sort of a – it would grip – if it was gripping enough, you know, like uh, like Roots, um, it sort of took over the country for, yeah. for a time. Like this podcast. Just like the Remnant podcast, actually. <laughs> um, all right. So, but uh, um, on the media stuff, uh, you mentioned how. Oh, I should say, right? You're you're at Real Clear Politics. I'm at Real Clear Politics yeah, now. I, I'm always bad about actually introducing who these guests are because, particularly when I know them well, I just assume everyone. <laughs> and we got to know each other basically from Special Report and all that kind of stuff. And then we were, um, we had a 
uh, Yumi and Hayes had a fairly intense bonding experience in New Hampshire almost <laughs> eight years ago or something like that. And uh, I will never tell where we buried that body. But anyway, <laughs> so um, um, the you, you mentioned how The Hill was looking for people to go on TV with their byline under it. This is so. This is one of the things I want to sort of focus on a little bit. Is that you actually know how the sausage is made on the media side and on the hillside better than most people? And this is one of the things that surprises a lot of people. Is that there are a bunch of we don't have to name names, right? Um, we don't have to throw people under the bus. Be diplomatic. But there are people, often uh, not to be too callous about it, very attractive female people. But they're just there are people who call themselves blank institution columnist or columnist for something or other. And they may do a column. I mean, it's sporadic, but basically these outlets are buying a advertisement yep. to have someone go on, spout some talking points with their identification underneath it, right? Yes. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I understand where it comes from, but that's new. Even, even like cable television has been around for you know, how, what, 25 years now, something like that, going back to CNN, right. Um, right. 30 years. But that's still, the the prevalence of it is much bigger than it used to be. Doesn't it feel that way? Oh, yeah, because what, what happened was the Hill, when, when so they came back to me, and I had, it had been, I guess, seven years since I worked for them about, and they said, we have this idea that you know so much about that, you know, you're now sort of old enough as a reporter who's covered Congress for so long that you would be a good person to come back and and be on TV. Our editor chief's too busy. He's putting he's on deadline, you know, that you could you could be available to uh, write a column about sort of the White House and Congress and then represent us on television and 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 roll call. You know, they'd had more Kondraki, you know, yeah. and, and that and that this idea. So it was a smart idea. And this yeah. is literally in 2006. And what I've seen since then, you're right, is I will see someone on TV a few times and then all of a sudden they will have a column somewhere. Right. That they didn't have. Yeah, the causality is kind of going the other way now. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it's an interesting shift. And I think it's all praise and honor to people who loved being in front of a camera. But th- in Washington, behind the scenes... There are people that you know are writers first. I mean, when I say writer, I mean whether they're columnists or reporters or just thinkers or whatever. But there are people who take yeah. the subject matter first and being on TV sort of a distant second. And then there are a bunch of people who care more about being on TV and then they got to write something somewhere to justify being on TV. And part of that was like – I think one of the flips was – I was actually a kind of a big fan of the old Crossfire. Right. For youngins out there, there used to be the show called Crossfire. Um, and it had left and right. And it was originally like Buchanan and Novak were the right wingers. And Tom Braden? Oh, my gosh. Wasn't that a flash in the past? Yes. And then Michael <laughs> Kinsley? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then the flip came when they got in the 2000s when they put Carville and Begala on as the left wingers. And the, Carville and Begala are serious people in their actual professions, but their position wasn't to argue a deeply held conviction. It was just to be partisan spinmeisters in the moment. And more and more, you find that there are a lot of people out there who, if the if the Republicans are for it, their job is to be against it, whatever it is, yep. and vice versa. And I've always thought that was fine from political for want of a better term, hacks. You know, if you're a political consultant, right, 
by all means, your client right. is the party. Go say your stuff. But more and more, you find that that there are there are people who fancy themselves columnists or pundits, or they think their job is to offer their sincere positions. When in reality, what they're doing is they're just coming on to spout the partisan talking points for their side, as it were. This is where I'm really holding back names. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It is. Um, it, it is interesting. I I know what you mean, and and. And then they'll have a column and it confuses the audience because it says they're a columnist at wherever, but they're doing what you're describing. And so all of these lines have been blurred. It's so bad for the people's assessment of the political debate, the facts of the political debate, um, the lines, the blurred lines in journalism, you know, the the, the lines that you and I have seen blurred just from the time we grew up when you could find uh, unbiased facts and now – Everything is just um, an article that someone found on the internet on a website like ilovefreedom.usa.org with like a million flags on it. And so that means that it's a real news article. Right. This is Sometimes really – R-U. <laughs> this is <laughs> – right. This is a huge um, th- th- um, uh, point of importance to me that I discuss whenever I give presentations to, to audiences about politics. I always sort of end with this whole macro section about – you know where this, where we're going with uh, partisan media, and how you know I would urge people to get off Facebook and not get their news from Facebook because everything you're reading in your news on Facebook is was chosen by an algorithm to affirm your biases and make right. each other, make us hate each other more. And that you know you you have to really be a wise consumer. You can still consume your siloed media, but that you should. Um, that you should know that you're doing it and and take in some some serious stuff that you know is 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 real but i i in in, in looking at the the pundit part um it, it's interesting because i uh i go on i go on fox and msnbc and cnn mm-hmm. and i don't ever want to be on contract with any of them because then you get siloed into these sure. the, the way they pair you with people and and it, and I'm so disturbed by. Uh, there are a few other people that go on all three, but very few, and not as regularly yeah. as I do. And I get hate mail, you know, from every time I go on. And it, and it, I think it is hard for the audience because I do say things that offend the audience on MSNBC um, about the direction of the Democratic Party, and then I say things about President Trump on Fox that offends the audience. And so it, I think it is hard for the audience, Jonah, to understand that I'm there as a someone who covered the Congress right. for a gazillion years, and, and that I'm providing that your con- own opinion. Right. And, then I, right, and then I'm a columnist now, not a reporter, yeah. and then I'm allowed to give my opinion, and it's commentary from years of like this sure. expertise I have about the Congress and and that the person next to me who's writing for something.com and has a column on that platform actually is a partisan. It is very, yeah. very confusing. Well, so the reason I bring this up, and I'm, I apologize to listeners who have bored with this. You may have heard me ramble on about this, but in part inspired by John Ward and his long form podcast and um, our long game podcast and um, stuff from Yuval Levin and some other people, I've become convinced of this argument that a bunch of political scientists have made, scientists have made that you know the, one of the problems that we have in this country is that it's yes partisanship is really really bad and it's probably the wor- it's certainly the worst it's been in our lifetimes right right but but that is despite the ironic thing about it is that the parties themselves have never been weaker and in fact the reason that's one of the reasons why partisanship is so bad because 
the parties used to pl- perform this function of, you know, like the mom or dad on the couch yelling at the kids, if I hear one more sound out of that room, I'm coming in there, right? Don't make me come in exactly. there. Exactly. And, and the parties, you know, the parties used to be able to impose discipline. We're seeing a little bit of this with Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and the, the gang of four. And, but it's, you know, Justin Amash in his big Fourth of July Declaration of Independence thing, he talks about how partisanship is so bad and party loyalty is so bad. But partisanship and party loyalty, they're kind of different things. Partisanship is kind of like this culture war side of things, which is that that team is bad and whatever we do to beat that team is good. But the actual mechanisms of power, there were parties used to say to people, hey, knock it off. Hey, Steve King, stop talking about the dirty brown people. You know, that kind of thing. When that's not around, everybody starts acting out even worse. And that's basically how I see Congress. Is that fair? Yeah, you and I have this. We have this is our, a shared pet obsession besides dogs that we oh, we're going to get really, dogs. really agree that the parties are on life support, yeah. that the duopoly is broken. It's the wild freaking West and cable television and other things gerrymandering, a lot of factors give Steve King and Louis Gohmert and AOC mm-hmm. like a, a lot of oxygen right. to define the parties. And you are right. Partisanship has become negative partisanship, which is like, I just want to kill the other side. Right. Not really sticking up for my side. Although in the age of Trump, it is to stay in the power circle, a lot of it, a lot of the acquiescence that we've seen. But negative partisanship is, I just want to kill the other side, drink their tears. So the But party loyalty is required to govern. It's required to win. And it's required to sustain holding power. And and what we're seeing now is there's leadership without any followership. So we saw that with Speaker Boehner. We saw it with Speaker Ryan. Now we're seeing it with Speaker Pelosi. And I think after – I'm really eating a lot of shoes because I counted her out. There were more than 30 Nancy refusers on the record. I thought she had a math problem and could not win again. Not only has she won – but I am. I think she's really exceeded expectations in yeah. terms of what she learned from her first speakership. And Nancy Pelosi, this is not her first rodeo. It's like her 89th. Yeah. And she was urged to try to push for impeachment of George W. Bush, which I know that you think actually committed something on <laughs> on, on the definition of impeachable. Um, and so she 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 is taking the right course. She's doing the right thing. You can be governor, you can be pure, but you can't do both. Thank you, Ted Cruz, and his pathetic shutdown of the government in 2013. These are, but these are things that the party used to be able to control. And you're right. And then they can't. And so what I believe is that there are coalitions around things coming up in the future. Um, Like no, everyone thinks that there's a million things wrong with capitalism, but no one's figured out, you know, what we're going to do about it. But that will be a coalition that will be nonpartisan, right? Mm -hmm. Millennials are nonpartisan. They hate labels. So I do believe that we've broken up into the sort of 70 percent in the middle, which I talked about with John Ward, where you have these extremists, probably 15 percent or so on both sides that are like anarchists and don't want to govern. And they're strangely, actually, ironically, like isolationist and protectionist in, in these weird ways. But the 70 percent of us in the middle that don't want to form a third party and and but believe that the system that our founders left us require consensus, we're all getting we're, – it's those are the people I want to stay engaged and vote in primaries and expunge the radicals from these gerrymandered seats and all these things I want them to focus on and don't get so mad and burnt out on politics that you leave. But they're the they're all we have because right. because they're 
like I said, they're largely free traders. They're from this side of the spectrum to that side of the spectrum, immigration tolerant to immigration friendly. Mm -hmm. And but we all have, you know, we believe that this country is still the hope of the earth. You know, these things that we do share, even though we're not in the same parties or independent like me. And and it's the, and I call myself an anti-partisan because I hate partisanship. Yeah, I, I'm fine. I'm not in either party, and I'm I'm so I. It's easy to hate both parties because they've gone crazy, and it's a self-enforcing cycle, self-reinforcing cycle. Whereas each party gets bad, it makes the other one worse. But I I'm desperate that this sort of center-ish holds. This like what I think is more than sixty five percent. But doesn't that the party? Don't the parties actually have to have more power for that to hold? I mean, don't you? Yeah, have to you're right because they have to vet candidates. Those? They have to vet candidates, and they have to govern. They have to get things across the floor, like Nancy Pelosi had to get the border bill, the best one she could get through the Congress for a signature from President Trump. She couldn't just protest. To hold power, she needs to govern. And right. so to win – to hold her majority next year, she needs to govern. And so everyone now wants to um, raise money on voting no and being pure and having like a really fierce Instagram game. And that's what AOC and her three members of her squad have learned from President Trump. Right. That it's like no publicity is bad publicity. They're not trying to govern. They they believe that long term change comes from. F she was just quoted recently in the post saying it's not about winning; it's about fighting. That's AOC. Yeah, and it's actually not. It's about a functioning government where you have some wins, you have a lot of uh, compromise involved, you get your eighty five percent of the loaf, and you move forward. So, I mean, it's it's a weird analogy, but it. I've argued for years; it pisses some people off that what. The Islamic world needs is not a Martin Luther. It needs a pope because in historic terms, the Catholic Church knew when to bend, when to make accommodations with reality, when to sort of deal with different heads of government and all that kind of stuff. It it was an old institutions know how to flex and yes. how to bend. And um, the Islamic world is all messed up because it's a, the Wahhabis are a lot like the 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 wild-eyed iconoclastic sects of early Protestantism who burnt down burnt paintings and tore down statues because they didn't like iconoclasm and all that and everybody is their own priest yeah and on Capitol Hill everybody is their own priest their own conscience what what is politics they're all performative they're not actually working I mean I, I I'm being unfair but the only ones who get noticed yeah. are the ones who put on a show and that's hot mess. And so, like, so regular order, right? I mean, what, first of all, define regular order, and when was the last time we had it? Well, it's, I mean, we haven't really had it. It was supposed to be restored in this Congress. You're supposed to be able, there are, I don't, I don't have Nancy Pelosi's record in front of me, but there's, you know, you're supposed to, but regular order, but just party. so people understand, regular order, regular order is like committees deal with their stuff first. You introduce stuff on the floor. Oh, right. So, so, so yeah. So we'll, so we'll go back to what the way it used to be. The reason that people, uh, talked about how powerful committee chairman like Dan Rostenkowski had become in 40 years of democratic rule was because, and it was because the work started in the committees right. and, and, the, and really, our policy was shaped by the committees. The bills were drafted, then they went to the floor for passage. But over time, um, through the Newt Gingrich speakership and into the rest, what happened was all the power was centralized to the speaker's office, the way that power is being centralized to the executive branch now. And so 
then they gave up earmarks, which means that I mean, so in so many ways, and you've talked about this a lot so expertly, Congress has just relinquished all of its right. authority, like happily. And it's so destructive to our system. And so now we have a lot of bills written at the last minute that the committee has barely, you know, the tax bill is the only thing that has been passed in the Trump era. And it wasn't, as we know, with the help of President Trump, I just have to get that in there. It was because Republicans desperately had to, or their donors were not going to support them in the 2018 election. Yeah. They did that. There were some hearings in Ways and Means that Kevin Brady, the, 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 the chairman put on so that they could say, but it was largely you know, written away from the committee and also, you know, most most importantly, without the minority. So the minority used to have a hand in this process, right. but the committee wrote these things. Now it's centralized and it comes to the floor and then you can't amend it on the floor. Right. There's no regular order, which required in the olden days when we had it, when we practiced this, that er people got to weigh in with limits. Sure. It wasn't 50,000 amendments, but um, and the minority had a chance to try to amend. What people figured out in the sort of professionalization of politics that happened from the time I arrived to cover this and now is that the amendment process just became a, what you, you always hear is a 30-second ad. So they don't really want to amend it. They just want to make this other side vote in this way and right. embarrass them. So, so now – we we have a process that's largely defined in secret in beforehand and there's not surprises on the floor the reason why you hear about these crazy votes like the medicare b whatever that was under bush where they held the vote open all night is because a surprise happened they do everything to make sure there are no surprises they right. pre-whip and re-whip and make sure that they know exactly where people are but another thing that i just want to make a point about now that we're in like really in the weeds is is that for years you know you heard John McCain and others even speaker Boehner who never ever took an earmark you heard about earmark spending and how that was so toxic and we were spending all you know it's pork barrel spending and we were spending things on the bridge to nowhere but the truth was that money largely was being spent in a way to bargain people to bills right to cooperation. And so I would go to you and I'd say, Jonah, I know you really need this project for your farmers or your, you know, your whatever, your hoteliers, anything, some group in your in your district, or it needed a bridge. I know you need this. And I and, and so we would work out ways. And it was a tally over time of how much you've helped the team and how much the team has helped you. Right. And that's teamwork. Yeah. And so because we don't have that anymore, not only are the nameless, faceless bureaucrats spending the money at the agencies, Instead of the Congress, which is, has the power of the purse, but we can't get anyone to say yes. They just go on Twitter and get really mad and get a bunch of cable hits off of it. And it's as Barbara Comstock, who was defeated in Virginia 10 uh, in 2018, said recently on a podcast that I did with her, I thought it was wonderful. She said, you can either go and be a workhorse or you, and they never get any notice mm -hmm. or you can go and be a congressional Kardashian. <laughs> And that is really what's happening is that there's a reward for being a congressional Kardashian. Yeah. And I have a whole list of senators that I always talk about when I speak to groups that, that are working really hard across the aisle that yeah. people don't even know. Mike Enzi of Wyoming, yeah. Marco Rubio is a real legislator. You know, people yeah. don't know. Chris Coons, yeah, he's on TV a lot. Usually I say the ones you see on TV fighting yeah. are not the ones working, but he actually has sponsored more bills, more – 
than any other Democrat with Republicans, more more than half of the Republican conference he's sponsored bills with. So he's really working hard to be a legislator. Yeah. So is Ron Wyden, who everyone just thinks is like this liberal partisan. So it's really interesting. It's the ones who are working so, so hard. Ben Sass, uh, this guy from Nebraska, on one of the early episodes, he said he said when he when he came to town as a senator elect, or or I think it was when he was a senator elect, and he just Sass's real superpower is he asks good questions of people. Yes, and um, and he went around and he talked to like people in the Obama administration, and he said, you know, what was, what was the most surprising thing about how this town works and he said that one of the most surprising answers he got from these people was that members of the administration would get senators and congressmen who come lobby them for some rule change that's really really popular in their state and the functionary in the white house would say well you know wait a second explain this to me this is like a 70 80 percent popular issue in your state why do you want us doing it rather than you actually pass some legislation and get credit for it yourself. And the answer was, in effect, yeah, well, I can tell the people who matter that I lobbied you to get this rule change, but at the same time, the 20 or 30 percent who are against this, they won't hold it against me, they'll hold it against you. Ah, wow. (laughs) There's some guts. (laughs) Yeah, but but this gets to the point. So, like, part of the problem we have in Washington is the parties suck, and the parties are basically straw men, right? Right. Temkin parties. And, And moreover... Congress sucks. Congress doesn't actually want to write laws. I mean, again, I always bring this guy. What's his face? Uh, Cory Gardner from Colorado. Yes. Right. I like him. He's a smart guy. When Sessions, who rumor has it was once the attorney general of the United States, <laughs> he has been retroactively airbrushed, airbrushed out of all of the Politburo photos. I actually, in the age of Bill Barr, miss him now. I know you and I disagree yeah. on that, but well, uh, I'm, I'm, long live I'm, Jeff Sessions. I'm getting closer to your position on okay. Barr, I'll tell you that. But... um, uh. We were joking about it. Nick Gillespie from Reason was joking on Twitter. He was like, "So did Jeff Sessions like actually happen, or what? What? What was that?" And I was like, "He's like the episode from The Sopranos and the Pine Barrens. He's like the Russian who's running around the woods and then just disappears, and you never know how that that storyline ends, right? Sessions is just gone." No, I understand, but I do think in that history will shine a really terrific light on him more than we understand because we will learn more later about what he did and, and what did he not do. I agree. I agree. What he resisted. And and he didn't quit. I I, I just I, I mean I know sometimes they told him not to, but anyway it, yeah. they oftentimes told him don't come in tomorrow. So um, it, what an amazing ride he must have had. But my point is is that so Sessions he changes that some rule about weed. Yeah, you know, and Cory Gardner starts running to television, screaming about how outrageous this is, and he was made promises by the executive branch that X and not Y and blah 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 blah. I don't even remember what issue got him so mad. You would have no idea unless you had previous knowledge that this guy was what they call a senator who can <laughs> write laws. You know, it was all yes, hectoring the executive branch to make all to call all the decisions. And so it's it's kind of like and so this gets to this thing I've been trying to explain for a while now in columns and I can't quite get it. There are actually very few political systems in the world that are presidential systems. Most are parliament of, of the demo- of the democracies. Right. Right. We're one of the few that's a democracy that's that's a presidential system. In parliamentary systems, you really elect the party. Right. And then the party elects its officers and elects its prime minister and all that kind of stuff. In America, we're not set up for that, but that's how people now want to vote. They want to vote for a party and they want the party to have – the party got voted in, so they want that party to have all of the power. And 
when you have a system that operates that is structurally the, the the instruction manual the rules for the system that is found in the constitution are explicitly not for a parliamentary democracy but the expectations and the dynamics of the actual politics out there is all about sort of the party unity the, par- the partisan loyalty that you're supposed to have <clears throat> and that if you're not if your party's not elected then you're supposed to be locked out of power and everybody does stuff on party line votes yep you get really screwed up politics. And that's, I mean, that's sort of where we are is because we have parliamentary democracy expectations about how things work in a system not designed to be a parliamentary democracy. And I think Paul Ryan has actually articulated that. And I can't remember if he did before he left as speaker or yeah. once he was officially retired. But I mean, that is an accurate description. And it, um, the system is a, is a, a shambles right now. I, we don't, you know, we just don't talk enough about how Congress doesn't do anything except on one night a year, like rewrite the lines, but actually most of them are just kept as last year's levels of spending because right. no one wants to have the fight anymore. Um, in the age of Trump, we could flirt with shutdowns, but we used to try to avoid them assiduously. And so it was like this thing that happened in a room privately and then it comes out you know, to avert the shutdown. None of the members know what the levels are, what the appropriations right. are. None of the legislating, which is and and drafting the spending plan, which is supposed to take the entire year, by the way, that is the mandate of the Congress has even happened. Yeah. And then um, no one likes the bill because they've spent too much. And we are facing, look at us in mid-July, we are facing three monumental tasks. The government funding bill has to come together. By September 30th, the debt ceiling has to be raised. And the third thing is the sequester has to be avoided. Ever since 2011, which is when we flirted officially with default um, and we formed a super committee in Congress that failed, uh, we've had this thing called the sequester, which is a 2% across the board cut. And it's a terrible way to make decisions. And so every year, the two parties sheepishly, quietly avoid it. And it's done by lifting the Budget Control Act caps. So they have to lift the BCA caps, raise the debt ceiling, and come up with the government funding bill all by September 30. And no one's talking about the fact that it's a complete hot mess. If you yeah. look into the reporting, you know, from the five people in this town that know what's going on, you know that the parties are so far apart, they can't even meet yet for real discussions because McConnell's group, the majority leader in the Senate, is at odds with the people in the White House. The whole thing. And we probably can suspect that the Democrats will require that the Hyde Amendment get removed, right. something that, you know, some explosion is waiting not only on on the, on the side of what President Trump will do to create a dramatic scene, but also on the side of the Democrats as well. So you were here when the Contract of America came in. Uh-huh. And you were covering this stuff back then. Yeah. What people people f- seem to forget that the, what the Contract of America called for was really poll tested. It's kind of small ball stuff at a, at a time when there was a lot of outrage about process stuff on the Hill, the, the franking, you know, people using yes. stamps and yes. the, college, the the House bank account and all that kind right. of stuff. And so, you know, and I, I talk about this in speeches all the time. If you actually look at um, the rhetoric of Democrats against the contract with America versus what the contract with America actually promised – it's kind of snug. my favorite quote, which is comes from Charlie Rangel, who said about the contract with America, 
Hitler wasn't even talking about doing stuff like this. <laughs> and like, which is true. It's like he wasn't talking about like zero-based budgeting and term-limiting committee chairs. But, um, but of the stuff that, that Newt did in all of that, and I, uh, you know, full disclosure, my wife used to work for Newt. I used to be on friendly terms with Newt. I think what Newt has become is a grave disappointment to me. Um, I think his absolute determination to set fire to his own legacy on everything from NAFTA to expanding NATO simply so he can be in the mix a little while longer. To Robert Mueller. To Robert Mueller. <laughs> it's, it's, grot- it's all grotesque, right? And he's an example of someone who cares more about being a pundit in the mix than actually being a statesman, but he loves to talk about statesmanship. Um, so sorry, Newt, but you you broke my heart. Um, I know it was you, Fredo. Anyway, so um, of the stuff that was in the contract with America, how much of it do you think you know, what, X number of years later has been for the good versus not? Well, a lot of it just passed the House and it couldn't get through the Senate. We, you know, term limits is something you always want to uh, talk about, campaign on, and then pass a bill on and, and hold press conferences about, and then no one, it'll never right, happen. They term limited committee chairs, right? Right. Um, right. And that, and that, uh, that, that is they they had rules about um making bills available that that all actually um the term limit on committee chairs has a very powerful effect sort of good and bad mm-hmm. which is that um people are always jockeying for the next chairmanship and that right. starts right away um in terms of like ordering the leadership um but it's also good because you don't create these fiefdoms that we saw under the 40 years of, you know, barnacled democratic rule when right. these people could do really whatever they wanted. So it's – it's uh, it, but what's interesting about that time that I remember um, is that it was a very smart and, – and I too just having, you know, starting to cover the Congress at the end of the democratic era and then through the change – uh, it it really was remarkable to watch Newt Gingrich's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of the nutty professor, but you know, a brilliant really, guy. really, really extraordinary. Combined with his kind of you know partisan rage and zeal, and like a really kind of good marketer, it was the it was just the fact that that telling the American voter that. It, they were going to cleanse all the dirt and all the dust, that they were going to make it more efficient and focus on the system and the process that people really craved. They craved this idea that not not just policy changes, but that these process changes, most of which didn't really last, uh, b- would really uh, deliver a healthier system. Yeah. And instead, most people look back on that and remember it as the time when – People, the parties stopped working together. You started fundraising on day one, the minute you came to serve your term as a two-year member. That um, you used C-SPAN um, for, you know, partisan warmongering, and that Newt Gingrich spoke in those terms of war yeah. that we see President Trump, um, you know, really, I mean, waging. That, that's what he does. It's like he. It's almost like that might have been his personality, but he learned that. From Newt, uh, that that's what that's what um, that what Gingrich gave us, and so it, it's it's just interesting. Um, and, and like I said, I, I, I there's there's some cleanup that was good, but a lot of it it, it wasn't regular order in the end. Where'd you, you come know, down on McCain-Feingold? So I remember 
at the time, just I was so happy that something was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I covered that when I was, I think, at ABC, and um, and I and I did not understand at the time how much it would do. You know mm-hmm. what you always quote Mitch McConnell and it and and it I and then Citizens United and all these changes. I mean, I I, I tend to think that campaign finance. I, I don't have a perfect solution for it, but I can sort of see the problems and that and you can see how that is what happened, is that that was part of the death of the parties, the weakening of the parties, the um, disemboweling of the parties to give it to the outside. Uh, They can't really raise real money anymore. They don't really matter. And if you can't really raise the real money, then how could you pick the candidate? So it's really the beginning of the end of all the things that you and I have talked about being so problematic. But um, but I, I... I also think it's just so interesting whenever people talk about, you know, Elizabeth Warren's not doing any fundraisers and she's it's it's sort of a Democratic primary voter uh, focus. Right. Like, I don't think that independents talk about campaign finance. I don't think about, we we did at that time at the time yeah. of McCain Feingold. It was like a national discussion. Right. And then I feel like it went dormant. Yeah. And then a bunch of people got exercised about Citizen United. And then we got into the point now where it's really only kind of left activists that sit around talking about uh, yeah, I, changes I, that we can't make. I find the so much of the get corporate money out of politics stuff to be the sort of mix of like Thomas Nast cartoons and vestigial Marxism. I mean, this idea that, uh, you know, first of all, if you look at, say, the NRA, way people talk about the NRA, and I got my problems with the NRA these days, but they're not giving huge amounts of money to politicians. I mean, they may direct people to give some money and all that. I'm not saying it's trivial, but... It's nothing compared to like the government, private, public sector unions or the trial lawyers or anything like that. But anyway, nothing. We, we've inflicted enough policy nerdery on, on listeners. So you talk to a lot of people on the Hill on purpose. And among Republicans, if you had to take a guess, and my hunch is that, there are, that there's a filter bias problem here in terms of who you talk to and who you don't. But um, if you had to guess. I don't talk to Steve King. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean. That's why you're boning up on your German. And um, if breaking news, <laughs> um, if you had to guess among the Republican caucus, how many of them are happy with Donald Trump in private conversation um, versus public conversation? I'm trying to figure out how the best way to put this is like, what is the space between what they say in private about Trump and what they say in public about Trump? Because in public, you have to heap totally. all praise and honor, totally. right? Right. But I've been in enough green rooms. You've been in enough green rooms. Um, uh, And you actually know how to find your way around the hill. I don't. Um, I stay away from there as much as I can. But um, I've yet to have a conversation with a Republican who wasn't vast, uh, elected Republican official, who wasn't vastly more, at the very least, even-handed, maybe not fully sounding like the recently exiled uh, British ambassador, but uh, close um, what is your sense of it? How many of them actually just love it versus are like, my God, what is he doing to us? I don't talk to Jim Jordan much about uh-huh. this. So um, I, I think there are, um, as you know, part of the uh, – there's two parts to this. And it's really hard for me to talk about actually because it's like sort of been a wounding experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a conservative, but 
but I hang around. I, I, I'm not a conservative. I'm not a liberal, but I'm probably more conservative than liberal. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a Republican or a Democrat because I hate the parties. I have policies. I've always seen you, just for the record, we've actually never really gotten any weeds on this. It's sort of a squishy liberal Republican or a, <laughs> or a conservative Northeastern Democrat, somewhere in there. Yeah, so so it's so funny because I, I'm, you know, I am a dinosaur. And I remember when I was covering Congress and there were people like John Chafee and John Warner and um, Charlie Stenholm where, you know, the, the Democratic, the conservative Democrats were much more conservative than, than, right. the, than the moderate Republicans. People um, forget we got Joe Lieberman because... Bill Buckley, in part, wanted thought it'd be better to have a serious conservative Democrat than a squish Republican like Lowell Weicker. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah. Lowell Weicker, he had to go. I'm sorry. Lowell Weicker. <laughs> oh, my whole family's from Connecticut, so I'll leave it there. So, um, so the thing is that the, what has been so hard to watch is the um, and I, and and I'm not a conservative, so it's much more painful for people like you. But to watch the jettisoning of um, of all policy uh, priorities and principles yeah. like limited government and free trade and um, the hatred of eminent domain and other things. So that's just been really unbelievable. So if you if you gave Mark Meadows truth serum, what would he say mm-hmm. <laughs> about being a big spender, about um, all of all, whatever the positions they've changed on to, to serve Trump? Um, but they, they do it eagerly. And they they feel and the other ones that I talk to who are tortured, um, who go through the motions in public and everything. It's been a very difficult conversation. They've been difficult conversations. They continue to be difficult conversations because what they express is a powerlessness about where the party's gone. And that just they they cite the uh, president's approval rating among their primary voters in their district if they're House members. Mm -hmm. So they talk about uh, the threat to their holding power. The threat to their jobs because the because the the electorate is now a cult of Trump. So what are they to do? Right. And then um, they're on the Senate side when they're not actually dealing with an immediate uh, electoral deadline. They uh, I've had longer conversations about um, something that, you know, a lot about, which is the sort of disinformation vortex where or lack of information vortex where they have expressed to me that their constituents, including in their family, know 17 percent about the Trump that, that we do in Washington, right. about his business background and his past, about everything he's done that week, everything. It was like that lady from the Justin Amash right. Town Hall who had no idea the Mueller report yeah. didn't completely exonerate Trump of everything? Because she took the Bill Barr thing and she ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he told the masses there were no reason to read the Mueller report because he framed it for them. And no one wants to read the Mueller report. Yeah. And there's no cliff note version. There's an eight-page summary and people won't even read that. So anyway, so these are torture conversations about their powerlessness to, and they have to make lemonade from lemons. Mm-hmm. And I think you hear it sometimes – in this, in the transition, which was slow at first, from Lindsey Graham, he has a line where he says, "I'm just trying to help the president succeed. I, I see it as my job to represent the interests of the people of South Carolina, meaning mm-hmm. a solid whopping population of Trumpkins mm-hmm. who determine his primary outcome." Right. And then he says he tries to couch it in like patriotic terms about how he sees it as his job to help the president succeed. And so along the way, when I try to inject that into the conversation, their burden, which is that they have a higher burden than their brother or the people in their town or their county or their state, 
to actually stand up to things that are wrong or are lies or are constitution benders. Like or just the bad for the long-term brand of the Republican Party. You know, I mean, right, I'm not saying that's I'm a thinking, top priority, right? But my point right. is, is that you need two healthy parties that stand for reasonable right. stuff in this country, right. and and right now neither do. And they're not doing any of that. I mean, from the from from their own character, reputation preservation, the thing that we've discussed so many times, which is that history only remembers the people who stood out and were bold, not right. the ones who cowered. Onto the Republican Party, onto the greater country, onto the Congress, a separate and co-equal branch, onto the greater good of the country long term. It's just literally surviving the weak. So what's your theory of Phil Graham? I'm not Phil Graham, Lindsey Graham right now. Basically that? I think that there was a time where he could have jockeyed for um, – he didn't want attorney general. He could have jockeyed uh, – and there was a lot of talk about him as uh, secretary of defense – and he, he chose to be pretty good at it. Right. Yeah. And I actually thought that that would be a great like end game for him um, and and for us. Mm-hmm. But he decided that he wanted to be a senator and be the judiciary chairman, which is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And so um, he chose one of his first uh, – he chose the raid on Roger Stone's home to be one of the first things he, he concerned himself with officially when he mm-hmm. became judiciary chair. Um, refuses to bring in Bob Mueller and on and on. But he obviously is looking at fending off. I think he was in like, what, a seven-way primary last time. And so he has no challengers. And he is enjoying his seat at the side of the president as one of his strongest allies. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I I know you've got to go and we've gone long. I could do this for a while, but... um, I'm good. Whatever you need. um, So, all right. So one last point on that since you have to... Yes. my sense of it is, is that, and I know there are a lot of listeners who think I'm constantly disparaging of people who voted for Trump. That's not my point. And, you know, if you actually think that, you know, the the dragon of Budapest, Seb Gorka, is a serious person, then I got a problem with you, right? But if if you just generally think you'd rather have Trump in there than Elizabeth Warren and you think that we're getting good things and, and it the... Uh, the chaos and stuff is a price worth paying according to your cost-benefit analysis. I may have my disagreements with you, but I don't think that's an immoral or intellectually bankrupt position. But my sense is about this electorate thing, right, about this, this primary electorate, that while there's definitely a cult of personality out there about Trump, I think it's only about maybe 28% of the electorate, of the Republican, of the base, right? Oh, that uh, low. And, well... 28% of the the national electorate, right? So right. and so that makes it a little bigger of the base, but it's 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 that 34% that is as core in the polling. Yep. I meet a lot of these people. And in private conversation, you can say things about Trump and they don't get angry. You know, they may disagree with you. You have to be diplomatic about it. You don't want to insult them, and I think that's the key point is that I think the thing that drives so much of this stuff is it's not so much pro-Trumpism. It's the anti-anti-Trumpism on the right. It's this idea that you are... That you and I are not allowed to criticize the things he does. A member of our own... You're not allowed to go after a member of our own tribe, our own family, when the other side is attacking him. And and so criticizing... You don't have to necessarily praise Trump, but you can't criticize him because it's seen as giving aid and comfort to, yes, the, to, the, to enemy. the enemy. Yes, right? completely. And the thing that drives me crazy is... Well, personally, I think it's still a profile in cowardice for elected officials from a not even co-equal, but a superior branch of government. It's my view of Congress that they don't speak up on sort of basic indefensible things, but that 
they think they have to praise him. And I'm not sure that the voters in their districts or in their states actually reward them for the praise. I think they just punish them for the criticism. But I'm not sure about that. I mean, I haven't looked at the polling. It's a hard thing to prove. It's just that I more and more think that this all this talk about Trump's approval rating at being 90 percent among Republicans feels very much like the Iraq war to me. You know, it's definitely it's, in the 80s. It's like, screw you, yeah. mainstream media. I know what you're doing when you're asking me whether or not I support Trump. And I'm going to say it because I know it's going to annoy you. But though a lot of those people understand the criticisms of Trump. And a lot of those people say to me when I meet them at various places, you know, I wish he would just be more disciplined or I wish he would stop with the insults and being so petty. They don't all love the full spectrum Trump. Right. They just hate his critics. Right. I know. I agree with you. And actually, I agree. The reason why this has been so wounding for me is I don't have a problem with the Trump voter. I have a problem with the elected Republican officials who abide him and go overboard and flatter him when they know things are really wrong and really destructive to the system that we have that's in really bad shape anyway. And I, I just find it really hard if they're the only, if they're the only stabilizing force we have to push back against Trump. It's not the job of the voters. Like I said, it's their burden. You're a high ranking senator and you can tell me that you know he's a sociopath, but I mean, that's, I, this is a real conversation. Yeah, no, that's what I was trying to get at before. And then, like, and I, then, and then you go out and, 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 and flatter him on CNN or Fox because that in, endears you. He counts who's flattering and who's just staying neutral. It's not that he notices, first of all, he notices if you criticize, but if you don't criticize, you don't get credit for not criticizing. Right. Even but, if you see, privately but, called the hotline and said, I'm really furious, but I'm not going to say anything publicly, you have to, you have to, you have to froth with joy. But that gets my point is that the senators who are doing that, they're not doing it for the voters. They're doing it for Trump. Right. There's right. two audiences. Right. Right. The voters are not asking to hit them to flatter him. Right. And so that's but it's that's what Trump requires. That's why foreign leaders try to flatter him. It's because that's the only path in. And that so so the, this is my whole problem with with all of this It's never about why people vote for Trump. And it's not about Trump. Trump can't control himself. He is incapable of not being cruel, of not lying. He's he, of not undermining the judiciary, law enforcement, everything around our democratic system. He doesn't believe in the Constitution. He doesn't believe in the courts. He doesn't believe in the Congress. He he wants what he wants, and he wants it yesterday. And so the only people that I know could help control this acceptance of lying, acceptance of cruelty, acceptance of everything, uh, busting of democratic norms, all of this long-term damage that nice doesn't matter anymore, that decent doesn't matter anymore, that character doesn't matter anymore, all of this combined in this toxic stew, the only people I can hold responsible for just growing it exponentially are Republican elected officials because yeah. it doesn't matter what Nancy Pelosi says. And it doesn't matter what the – I'm not insulting the voters. It doesn't matter what Trump thinks. He's going to get up tomorrow and do the same thing he's done for the last two and a half years. Nothing will change. He's all bark. He's no bite. He's full of bull. He doesn't care. He just wants to put on a show. He wants to be on TV. And the fact is I'm counting on these people and they do nothing yeah. to stop the damage. And they'll want the law, the rule of law back. Jonah, they're going to want the truth back when Chelsea Clinton is president. They're going to be very <laughs> upset about her and her husband-in-law running the Mideast portfolio and having three trademarks for the Chinese government. I'll tell you how upset they're going to be. They don't care. Yeah. They don't care. And I've been surprised by how furious it's. It, I just find it 
stunning to me that they don't think they have that responsibility. No, I look, I agree. And I, I find it really amazing how every now and then you'll see these little quotes like from Speaker Ryan, you know, in that sort of exit interview thing in the New York Times Magazine and various other places. Well, you have no idea the stuff we stopped. It's all, I, I understand. And, you know, that may be true. But if that's true, then doesn't that tell you that you've got an obligation to sort of be, work harder at it, you know? But, you know, anyway, how's your dog? <laughs> so my dog is doing great. He is... He's up there, right? He is, yes. And that's part of... Yellow um, Lab? He is a golden retriever. Golden retriever. He is 12 and a half. Uh-huh. And um, I can say that goldens go a- around 12 or 13. And so I'm in that really – it's good when you've had a dog age on you before because you learn about it. It's a yeah. singular experience. And he's doing so great that I'm just – I've prepared the kids. It could be – it could happen at any time. They just give you 10 more days and then it's over yeah. and it turns like this. But he's so great. He has a young walk. He has a young face. He just um, he he has uh, some brown eyeliner and some really weird patch of dark hair back here, and he's got some bad teeth. So mm-hmm. there's some interesting. There's like a there's an interesting hound five uh-huh. percent in there. Yeah, he didn't have his golden tail at seven months when I adopted him, and he had a hound like a almost hairless hound tail, like really? short hair, and then not the hairless whole, but flat hair. Right. Short hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Wiry, and then the it's whole golden tree ruin later. No, not hairless. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was the wrong thing. But um, but he, there's something in there. I think that's like giving him a little longevity yeah. that the more pure goldens don't have, which for which I'm very grateful. And he goes to um, water treadmill therapy because he's had nice. a replaced. CCL, and then he has a tear in an ACL, but we wear a brace on that one, the one he, we haven't operated on. So we wear it at the beach or if we go for like a hike in the woods. Yeah. But around the house, you'd never know if you saw him and, and he tolerates the brace when we exercise. So that's been actually, I, I spent a lot of money on that knowing that he was going to reject it and that my husband would get mad at me. And I was rewarded for my faith because he actually tolerated it and it's really helped. So I recommend it to anyone who has an old dog who's in the retriever family because uh-huh. they have the worst bones because the braces really help fend off further damage. Yeah. So he's just amazing. He's amazing. So he, having gone through the departure of Cosmo, the greatest dog who ever lived. Yes. Ever be, um, and shown up for a special report that night. I might yeah. Um, audience. My, um, uh, my daughter... I think could handle the passing of our dogs pretty well. She's not bonded with them the way you might hope she would. If Gracie, our cat, went, I'm like if if, if Gracie passed, I probably would not. And like Lucy was in her first year of college, I probably wouldn't tell her till graduation. I would just say, oh, I don't know where Gracie is because right. she would find it so devastating. And just one of the reasons I bring this up is that now when I re- I've lost cats too. When I reference you. To my daughter Lucy, I can say Miss Daughter or A B, and she knows who you are. But for about six, five or six years, the only way I could get my daughter to get a radar fix on who you are was to say, "Remember the nice lady who was at our house who really liked Gracie?" And then Lucy, would be like, oh, I remember her. She's I really beautiful. Like you have beautiful cats. Is that your mom's cat that you also no put- Fafoon? You know, it's hard. So people don't follow me on Twitter. It's a little difficult to explain. But my mom has three outrageously expensive cat. Yes. 
I know the Fafoon is expensive. Yeah, they're Scottish folds. Yeah. And, or one's a, I think a Russian blue, but they're kind of weirdly related. I don't, I don't quite yeah. understand it. But Very special. Very special. And Fafoon is extremely popular with certain people on Twitter. Yes. And, um, uh, and I will actually get new, fresh Fafoon content this weekend because I'm <laughs> going up to New York. So I will stay and I'll stay. I think Gracie's beautiful. And I think your other cat. I, My I, wife's cat, I, Ralph. I think your, your cat's. I they're just I I I love cats so I I think they're beautiful and I remember that I remember getting to meet Gracie and and I understand the good thing about cats they live a little longer yeah but it is hard yeah. it's when you're when you appreciate cats you know they don't give us what dogs give us but what they give us is so wonderful too yeah uh, there's something about the fact that they don't need you and then when they decide to just honor you with sitting in your lap and purring on you while you're reading a book or whatever it's the greatest thing ever yeah but but that's the thing though is that there's the diversity of personality types among cats it's true it's true is in some ways greater than a diversity of personality types among uh, most dogs, dogs yeah you know i, I mean the, the 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 specific personalities of dogs really come out and you can see the difference even among like a litter of golden retrievers who all you know you know from 10 feet away look completely interchangeable. They do express different personalities, but there's a common golden retrieverness to them. I know. And I know. The, the diversity among cats is weird. It is. It, it, and that's why I'm actually nervous to have a cat again because it can go south. Yeah. It, it is interesting that way. And and you also, the cat that, you know, decides to scratch everything in, the, in your house versus the cat that doesn't right. and all that stuff, it is really hard. Homer is I got him when he was seven months and I also he was my second golden, my second rescue. And I am nervous about about I want to keep rescuing, but mm-hmm. he he was fostered and sheltered his whole life until I got him. So he had been in cages with, you know, foster families that had ferrets and he'd really been put through the paces. So he has a real anxiety level that I don't know if I could put up with next time. I adore him, but it it. I don't know what his personality was before he had the imprint of the homeless anxiety. Yeah. So uh, Kirsten Soltis Anderson. Yes. Um, I hang on the Daily Wally. Okay. So I, Wally, her dog Wally is a wonderful beast. And But do you know the story of Wally? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've actually shown – so I've shown pictures to my daughter, which was a mistake – of the new crop from the rescue in Turkey yeah. that um, Kirsten has put on – her Twitter to try to get other people to adopt some of the, you know, yeah. newly arrived. And and they're all adult Goldens, and yeah. they're just yum. And I'm... But it's like, to me, I mean, it was weird. There was a weird fight on Twitter the other day. I know that it never happens. And um, <laughs> um, where someone was talking about how all... that it's slavery to own dogs and you should release them to the wild and all this kind of stuff. <gasps> and like most, most, certainly most purebreds would die a pretty bad death if... If you just, you know, like you want to put poodles out in the wild, you know, basically you're just giving them to coyotes and wolves and and owls and cars and whatnot. But anyway, but the story that Kirsten says is for the listeners who don't know, and she talked about it on this podcast, it's really fashionable to have a golden retriever puppy, but not to have a golden retriever. So these jackwads, they release these young golden retrievers to the streets and make them strays. And golden retrievers are not well suited. Like my dingo, like Zoe. Right. She, she could live alive. off the streets for years, you know, no problem. She'd break into people's apartments and get their food if she had to. Or at least eat their, I know she'd... their parrots and ferrets right. and hamsters. I know what a killer um, she is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, 
I will tell you and, off air of, of, of some of her recent kills. They're, they're terrible. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone's going to miss that kid, but it, you know, who knows? And, um, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, it sounds weird to, re- to go to the trouble of rescuing golden retrievers from Turkey, but it turns out that like but the idea it's a problem of getting off a plane in Istanbul and seeing like stray golden string around is, is yeah. really bizarre. It's awful. It's really bizarre. But I thought the species had been domesticated so long ago that they actually are not meant to survive on their own. Most breeds. Well, so it's most well, so most breeds. That's right. Yeah. And. I spent about a year working on a thinking about writing a book about dogs, so I, I looked into a bunch of this stuff. And um, one of the fascinating things is that you could take on an island, right, um, a bulldog, a golden, a Doberman, a Rottweiler, um, and a bunch of other breeds, sort of like the dogs playing poker team, right, <laughs> and release them on an island. And so long as they could survive and find food and stuff, within three or four generations of breeding, they all end up basically looking like my Zoe. They lose the breeding. Um, that That's so wild. The Ur dog, which is like like the street dog of Caracas, of Kiev, of South America, North America, you know, that that street dog look, you know, regardless of color, of Tibet, doesn't matter. That's what dogs want to look like. And the breeding is this eugenic thing that pulls them away from that, but you can revert back to that pretty quickly. And uh, and that's why, you know, my my Zoe, she's prettier than most street dogs, but she still looks like the kind of dog that would be shot on sight on like in five continents. Um, so anyway. uh, that's that's a little much, but you know it's interesting because I I do want to say that Wally and Homer are both they both have sort of the authentic golden look of yore. And yeah, what's happening now is they're overbreeding them and they look like bear cubs, and yeah, yeah, you yeah. can just see there's a whole new look with their eyes, with their face shape, and it's it's. They, I think they're having more physical problems. It's it's a whole thing. So um, reading is real could be a real problem. Yeah. Um. I mean, look at most bulldogs now have to be born by C-section. Oh wow! And I think that's true of a lot of bassets too, is because like the mommy just can't handle a cranium that huge. Oh. And so if you don't have if you so if you don't yeah. have a doctor waiting when your bulldog is having puppies, terrible. You know. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's really bad like that. And what they've done to some border collies, which are the next species to take over the planet. Um, right, so smart. right. But ever since the AKC started allowing them into things like Westminster, people are breeding them for looks rather than for uh, herding. Really... And that's a real problem, too. But anyway, that's a subject for a whole other podcast. AB, thank you so much for thank coming Thank you, on. Jonah. It was so much fun. Love having you on here. Dear listeners, let me get out of here. I'm not staying. Okay. She's in. It's in your hands, Audrey. Sounds good. Bye. Say whatever you want about me. I, I will. I will. <laughs>